All right, you can, uh, kids can go to children's church. Yes, you guys can go, whoever goes. And if you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, that would be great. New chapter. Let's have another word of prayer before we look at the words of Jesus. Father, as we come to our Lord Christ's teaching, we just ask for your aid in taking things that might seem far away or distant from us or removed and understand how they apply because we have to live in the light of the realities here. So we ask for your grace to teach our hearts to think about the future and what that means for how we conduct ourselves now. We ask in Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, if you live long enough, as I have, you get to see some pretty remarkable changes uh, in the world around you. And I don't mean technology so much as interests and fads and cultural movements and those kind of things. You know, when I was a new Christian over 40 years ago, the church was focused in a really big way on the end of the world. So I got immersed in that kind of world myself, right there, end time prophecy, you know, and in the 70s, um, you know, the late great planet Earth era, that was the best-selling book of that decade, and um, there were all kinds of end time ministries, conferences, I mean, this is all going on before I became a Christian, TV programs, movies, Christian movies, Hollywood movies, uh, Orson Welles did the narration for the late great planet Earth, the uh, Hal Lindsey thing of all people. And, um, you know, Gregory Peck was in a movie about the Antichrist in uh, 1976, right in the middle of all that. And um, it got a little silly at times. In fact, I was given a book called Jimmy Carter, The Man Who Will Meet Mr. 666. I mean, everybody was thinking it was all happening right then and there. And I, I worked in Hollywood with a guy that was absolutely convinced that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. And... <laughs> I mean, it made sense. Ronald, one, two, three, four, five, six. Wilson, one, two, three, four, five, six. Reagan, one, two, three, four, five, six. There it is. That's the evidence right there. Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. I mean, it was, everybody was the Antichrist. That all kind of died down for a while, and there was a little bit of a resurgence in the oh, mid-90s and a little after that with the Left Behind novels when those came out and became a really big thing for a little while. And, but... Um, you know, honestly, the, the end of the world is not a dominant theme in modern evangelical Christianity. I mean, nothing compared to what it was back in those days. I mean, we just don't talk about it. It's kind of uncool to talk about it, maybe because of the little bit embarrassing stuff. Maybe that's one of the reasons. Also, a lot of theology has shifted. Um, uh, people are turning more away from dispensationalism and more away from um, Israel as have, being a spe having a special place in God's program, which is too bad, because that's pretty unbiblical, but, um, but that's sort of happening too. But I'm sure you've noticed, uh, while it's uncool among us to talk about the end of the world, there is a element of our society that can't stop talking about the end of the world, right? And it's not a religious thing, it's a secular religion, it's got all the attributes of a religion, um, priestcraft, uh, end of the world, doomsday stuff, and that's the radical sort of secular left, but it's really becoming sort of the dominant it's working, it's becoming the dominant part of our culture. Nothing Hal Lindsey ever said is as kooky as climate experts, uh, supposed experts in that. Who's that girl from Sweden, the kind of demonic looking girl? That, and, and I know she's got a problem, but um, she's so angry. 
Greta, Greta Thunberg, right? I mean, that's her name, yeah. So all of that stuff, I mean, she makes the guy with a sandwich sign saying the end is near look like a totally rational person. So um, people, people have stopped having children because of this hysteria about climate change. And I don't know if you were around when I was a, a young person in the 70s, but I'm, I know that uh, Leonard Nimoy had to hire Spock. He had a major documentary coming out saying the world was gonna freeze to death and global cooling was the, the dominant thing that ever, all the scientists were telling us about. And so I'm a little skeptical about all the experts. In fact, those guys that said if they blow the, if they blow the tops of the oil wells off during the Iraq war, it will cause a, a, the equivalent of a nuclear winter and the whole world will freeze. And so they blew them all and nothing happened. So I just, I'm just a little skeptical. But sep secular religions are, are no less strident than a cult. You know, it's a religious cult. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. And it's really a hysteria. It's human nature to be irrational. And um, so we're going to go on to talking about the end of the age here because we're arriving at Matthew 24 and Jesus is going to talk about it. He's not irrational. He actually has inside knowledge about what's gonna happen. For one thing, he read the Old Testament. But um, one of the great things about teaching the Bible verse by verse is you don't, well, I won't say you don't, I'll say you're restricted in overemphasizing certain things and underemphasizing certain things. You can't just like preach your favorite hobby horse thing because if you're going through the scriptures, you're pretty much are on track with what God wants, right? So that's one reason we do that. We do that here. We're kind of learning what God wants us to learn and, and we don't do a lot of speculation because these are the words of Jesus himself. So all we need to do since he knows is listen to what he says. And more importantly, how what he says should affect us. I mean, that's really where I want your hearts to go today. So we should ask ourselves, um, when we come, we've been all this way through Matthew, and now we're here, Matthew 24 and 25, um, why now? I mean, why is this here in the gospel nearing the end? Obviously, one of the reasons is Jesus spoke about this during the last week of his life, but um, but. Why, why two full chapters about the end of the age right before Jesus gets arrested and you start going into the Passion Week, I mean, the, the Passion of Christ at the end of the week. So we know Matthew's very purposeful. He sets forth his material in a very purposeful way. Everything is leading up to Jesus' Passion. So his choices in terms of the material he focuses on is really fascinating and significant. So the Passion Week really began in chapter 21, the triumphal entry, then Jesus cleansed the temple and kind of took over the temple for a whole week, kind of ran it. And then we have the day of questions starting in Matthew 21, 23, and Jesus um, tells parables to destroy the phony spirituality of those seeking to kill him, the religious leaders. And he says very plainly in 2143, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. So he goes on to best the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and then in chapter 23, the, he gives that eight woes just blistering the Pharisees, a whole long chapter just attacking the Pharisees. Um, and so Matthew is purposefully leading us up to this point. So the last part with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of that is he's showing that the religious system of Israel is utterly corrupt and a failure. It's a disaster in all of its different permutations and forms that it appears in. And it's missing. It's missing everything that God is doing among them. That's the great tragedy 
They're super religious people who are missing everything God is doing, opposing what God is doing. So Messiah is here, finally, and they hate him. They want him dead. So that had to be established. So the kingdom of Jesus is going to be built in the place of that religion. And the reason chapter 23 is there is so the followers of Jesus, you and me, don't slide back into that pharisaical mind. He, he, the, the worst thing that could happen to the church or the kingdom of God since Christ is to have a pharisaical way of living, a hypocritical way of living. He calls them hypocrites every single time during that woes chapter, chapter 23. And it's a warning to the church. Don't let the new covenant become a pharisaical religion. Forsake hypocrisy. Forsake religion to be seen by other people. Um, the desire for the honor of men has to be gone. That stuff just doesn't have any place in the church of Christ. Just shouldn't be there at all. So, then chapter 24 and 25. The, 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 this is the sixth and final discourse of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew has way more teaching portions than the other gospels, and um, this is the last one. So there's six major ones, the Sermon on the Mount being the first one. So um, we're, we're getting to that point here, and it's about the end of the age. It's the second longest of the discourse, so it's, it's, the Sermon on the Mount's the longest one, this is the second longest one, um, and it's about the future. So why, why is that important? Well, in the context of this, it's important because his earthly ministry is coming to an end, right? He's going to be crucified. He's going to rise from the dead, but it, his resurrection from the dead isn't going to be seen by everybody. He's not going to go around preaching anymore. It's going to be limited to his disciples, his, his time with them, and then he's going to ascend and he's going to be gone. And he said, I'll send the Holy Spirit in my place who's invisible and works quietly. So all of that is going to happen but it's really fitting because of that, because he won't be here, that he explains the future. He is coming back. He won't be away forever. And they need to understand that. And they need to understand that it might be a long time. So Messiah comes two times, once to bear sin and the second time to reign in righteousness. And the Christian life that we live now between the first and second coming, and we're still there, is to be lived in the light of what he accomplished when he came one time and in the light of what is going to happen when he comes again. And that changes everything. It changes how you live to know that he's coming again. Certainly how you feel in your life. So it's very important stuff. So that reality of the first and second coming allows us the freedom to serve him today without fear. And we know that this world is temporary and that the powers of this world are not going to last. And we don't have to be tied to what the world defines as happiness. We're free. We're free of cultural constraints. We're free of hysteria. We're free of whatever the world's into. We don't have to go that way. So we, we might be called to suffer loss for Jesus' sake. Even our lives for Jesus' sake, as so many Christians around the world are suffering today. We, we complain, and I complain, but we have it so good here, comparatively. And we can, we can suffer for him because, and then the people, let's just pick China. You know, I've been there. I know what they're facing. It's getting worse than it, since I've been there. But the incredible courage 
they know that no matter what happens to them, Christ is coming back, and it's temporary. It might look like this incredibly huge, dominant, monstrous, uh, high-tech surveillance state that controls everything, but Christ is coming back. It's all going to come crashing down. They know he's coming. They know there's a righteous judgment and a great reward for those who serve Christ faithfully. So let's kind of get started here. First of all, this is called the Olivet Discourse. That's a, that's a phrase you should know as a Christian. So the Sermon on the Mount, we call that chapters 5 through 7, that. And this is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives. That's the only reason for that. So it's where he was. That's why it's called that. The Sermon on the Mount was on a mount, and this one is on the is in the uh, Mount of Olives there. So it's interesting that this was not a formal sermon. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus planned to preach to a huge crowd of people. This is not like that. The setting is very intimate. It's just Jesus and his men, four men actually out of the 12. And as rich as it is, this discourse is really a response to a question that he's asked by one of the disciples. After a comment that Jesus made when leaving Jerusalem that morning. So Um, or that evening, I should say. Look at verse one there. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So they are marveling at the workmanship. And Mark tells us their actual words in his gospel. They say, teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And they were wonderful. I mean, this is a touristy comment, right? You know, oh, this is so great, so cool. And and Herod's Jerusalem was magnificent. It was magnificent. He he was a builder. And it was one of the wonders of the Eastern Roman Empire, the the temple in Jerusalem. It was a marvelous, marvelous work of engineering and beauty. And um, Herod, he loved to build. He built himself a lavish palace. He built himself castles and all kinds of stuff like that, a Roman-style theater, and outside the walls of Jerusalem, an amphitheater, and then a hippodrome. A hippodrome is where horse races are done and chariot races and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but the temple was the most amazing and ambitious project, and a work still unfinished after 50 years of working on it. They're still not done, but it's already magnificently beautiful, and the, and the guys are still cutting stone and putting things together, but it's already grand and gleaming white and gold and I mean real gold and Josephus who was there saw it and he said some of the blocks were just incredibly huge like 50 feet long and 24 feet wide and 16 feet thick and um, not only beautiful but just immensely strong and the disciples in the midst of all this admiration I don't think they were ready for the answer they were going to get so verse 2 he said to them do you not see all these things well yeah we see them we just told you Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Well, that's depressing. (laughs) That'd be like going to Notre Dame Cathedral two years ago and just admiring it. Somebody says, this will all burn in a year. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, I don't really need to know. But why is he telling that? Because this is their soon-to-be history. It's coming pretty soon. This Roman general... The Jews revolted against Rome in the 60s AD. This is in 33 AD when Jesus is speaking. So um, by the time the Romans got their armies all together and came in, they, they lost a couple of battles actually to the Jews. And then they, they don't like to lose. So they brought the whole eastern half of the empire's soldiers and 
just a major destruction, but they laid siege for Jeru to Jerusalem for a long time. And um, the general admired Herod's temple so much, he had ordered them not to destroy it. And Josephus, who was there, he's a Jewish historian living in the Roman camp, witnessed the fall of Jerusalem, and he said the soldiers of the, Ro the Roman soldiers were as if possessed. They disobeyed their own commanders and were so um, extreme when they finally got into the city, they destroyed the temple. They burned it, and the gold was melting out of the walls, and they tore it down stone by stone. Who said that was going to happen? That's right. Good job. So Jesus knew it would happen, but the disciples are stunned by the words. And so later in the day, when they were more relaxed on the Mount of Olives, there's an opportunity for questions. And Mark 13.3 um, tells us that four of the disciples, the three insiders, Peter, James, and John, and Peter's brother, Andrew, we finally got to be part of the in crowd. He comes with them, and they, and they, they talk to Jesus about this, and they ask questions about it, this cataclysmic destruction of the temple. So verse 3, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Luke's gospel tells us that they still believed that the kingdom was going to happen real soon, like now, you know. And even though Jesus had been saying, I'm going to be crucified and killed and all that, but they, they still believe that. In fact, in the book of Acts, after everything happens, the beginning of the book of Acts, they're still asking that question. Is it now you're going to establish your kingdom? I mean, they're waiting for the kingdom. He's the Messiah. So they're not tying all this in together in their heads real well. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be torn apart. Um, isn't this the, where's the glorious reign if they destroy the temple? How is all that going to work? So there's two questions here. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they probably saw that all as one thing, but in God's plan, these events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of Jesus are quite far apart, at least from that first destruction of Jerusalem, and they're separated by a span of, we know, at least 2,000 years. So the disciples expect Jesus to reign now or very soon as the glorious king of Israel, the promised one which all the Old Testament prophecies pointed to. So they're trying to piece it together, what they believe about him reigning and what he just said about the destruction of the temple. How does that work? You know, that's the question. How does that play out? And what should we look for? That's what they're saying. What should we look for? Good questions. So the answer gets kind of complicated. So the, the destruction of the temple is less than 40 years away. And some of these men and their families will probably be around when that happens. So some of this advice is going to be really practical as we work our way through Matthew 24 and 25. But um, you'll see that in the future. But the end of the age is a long way off. And we know from Daniel and the book of Revelation that the temple will be rebuilt because there will be a temple at the end of the age. And armies will besiege Jerusalem again under this figure, this antichrist figure. It's not Ronald Reagan, but um, <laughs> whoever he's going to be. So he's going to lay siege to Jerusalem. And it's just fairly common in prophecy. A number of prophecies have a kind of a shorter term sample fulfillment. There was sort of an antichrist figure actually before the Christian era. This man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who seemed to fulfill some of Daniel's prophecies. He did definitely fulfill some of them. But then those prophecies 
extend on Daniel chapter 11 be way beyond his life and there's things that never have happened yet even though it describes what he did in great detail and it did get come fulfilled Daniel describes things that never happened so um, we're still waiting for those things and that's part of the end of what Jesus is talking about there so it gets a little bit complicated but um, so sometimes there's a short term fulfillment and then a, ful a fuller sort of more important fulfillment later so as awful as the destruction of the holocaust that happened to the Jews in the first century AD there's going to be another one beyond the Hitler one uh, at the end so which is going to involve a temple so all of that's coming so um, Jesus is plainly prophesying that the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is going to happen soon and that does it is what happens in AD 70 but then he goes beyond that to answer their second question what are the signs of the end of the age because something, uh, like I said, is very similar going to happen again at the end of the age to the temple then as well. Anyway, um, Jesus says in verse 4, see to it that no one misleads you. Good advice. You have to pay attention. There's a lot of foolishness that has happened in the last 2,000 years that could have been avoided, avoided completely if people made sure that no one was misleading them about the second coming of Jesus. And so many people have been deceived and fallen into just foolish behavior, sometimes self-destructive behavior, because they don't, they're, they're being misled and they're letting themselves be misled by not paying attention to what he's saying. So it's really important, and that's why this is written down for us. There's always been foolish, millennial speculation. There have always been people who claimed it's coming now, and it always is going to be wherever you live. You know, if, the, if you're, in, if you're a, somebody that lived during the German Reformation, the, the second coming is going to happen here, you know, in this city, this German city. And if, if you're an American and you've got some cult going in the 1800s, you say, oh, it's going to be here in Missouri or uh, later in Salt Lake City or whatever the thing is, you know. So um, not to mention anybody in particular. But um, draw your own conclusions. <laughs> but false messiahs and crazy people and self-deceived people have always been around. Um, probably demonically inspired. But so we, we think, of, when we hear of like false messiahs and things like that, we think of Jim Jones or David Koresh or people leading their followers to destruction. There were false messiahs early in church history in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation days, 200 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, and since then, in the 1800s, there were a, a group was called the Millerites, and they didn't have a false messiah, but they sold their homes and their farms, and they all moved up to the top of this mountain because somebody was sure, prophetically or whatever, that Jesus was coming back on this certain date, and he didn't show up. So they were kind of wrecked their lives for nothing. And that happened not too long ago with some kind of kooky guy here in this country, too. And so don't be misled he says because so many are misled groups try to set dates the Jehovah's Witnesses just since their beginning have set three major dates when all it was all going to come down and they were wrong every time they kind of stopped doing that and they don't like to tell people they did do that but they did and they were wrong every time in recent times we've had people declare the date that Jesus would return only to be proven wrong again and again don't be misled so Jesus has two goals here to prepare his followers for the things they might encounter and to warn them about being misled about end time events what's going to come in the future so here's some specific things verse 5 many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many 
And those are your false messiahs. He said many, and he meant it, and there have been many. Many false messiahs down through history claiming the mantle of Jesus or the spirit of Jesus or the reincarnation of Jesus or something like that. And some people have, uh, they have, some people have a real knack or I don't know if I want to use the word gift, but they're really good at getting people to follow them uh, in the weirdest ways. You know, people that are just desperate or lonely or seeking or whatever, whatever their weakness is, they get them to follow them. You guys remember, um, sometimes they're like small fry, uh, false messiahs. You guys remember Marshall Applewhite, um, the Heaven's Gate guy? Uh, he got all those people to follow him, you know, and he led 39 people to commit suicide with him in San Diego, telling them that they were gonna jump on a spaceship that was following the hell bop comet that was going by and uh, would you do that? <laughs> they were all wearing black clothes and tennis shoes and put bags over their heads and uh, suffocated themselves and took barbiturates and they all had a little patch on that said uh, Heaven's Gate Away Team, like, like they were from Star Trek, you know, and 39 people killed themselves. That's being misled. That, that was 1996, it wasn't that long ago. And then in California, this guy Jim Jones created the thing he called the apost apostolic socialism. Apostolic socialism. And was, he was a big admirer of communist dictators. And so he founded this thing called the People's Temple, right? Very Marxist sounding. And he claimed to be the reincarnation of Gandhi, Father Divine, who was a false messiah from early in the 20th century, uh, Jesus, uh, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. So, so I guess Lenin was a reincarnation of Jesus. And, and he was a reincarnation after, after Lenin. Anyway, he was, a, he was not considered that weird. He was a big time player in San Francisco politics. Well, that would be the best place. But, <laughs> but in 1976, in September, Willie Brown, who was Kamala Harris's boyfriend, you know, um, served as the master of ceremonies at this huge testimonial dinner they had for Jim Jones. It was attended by Governor Brown and Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor Dimely. And after the dinner, at that dinner, after the meal, Willie Brown said to the group, he said, quote, Jones is what you should see every day when you look in the mirror. He said he was a combination of Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Mao Zedong. Well, that's an interesting combination. <laughs> so he was not an unimportant guy. I mean, at least in California politics, he was a kind of a significant person. Now, we know him because in 1978, he took all these people down to Guyana in uh, Jonestown, named after him, and there was a mass suicide of 920 people. If you're young and you weren't around then, you might not know that much about that, but you probably heard the expression, drink the Kool-Aid. Oh, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, that's how they killed the 920 people. And so ever since then, drinking the Kool-Aid means buying into something that's not real and is toxic for you. That's that idea, you believe somebody or somebody or something, oh, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. That's where that comes from. It's actually entered our culture. Bigger than Jim Jones was Sun Myung Moon a Korean-American who had millions of followers in Korea and in Japan and probably tens of thousands in the United States. And he was, a, he was on the other side of the political spectrum. He was an avid anti-communist, so he got real in close with 
political right-wing people, just like Jim Jones did with the left-wing people. And Moon created a newspaper, which is still in existence, the Washington Times, which is still a player in Washington, D.C., about uh, trying to influence things there. And in March 2004, Moon was given an award in the Senate building, the Dirksen um, Senate office building in Washington, D.C., and this award ceremony for him was attended by congressmen, by senators, I won't mention any names, and other dignitaries in Washington, D.C., and at the end of the ceremony, a bejeweled crown, this white crown, was put on his head and he was proclaimed the king of peace. Now, I'm not saying everybody there believed that. (laughs) They were probably shocked when it happened, but they were there. I mean, it's kind of creepy. But his influence declined because he died. So um, that tends to, he didn't resurrect. So unless he gets reincarnated as, um, well, I don't even want to think who it might be, but people will follow anything that appeals to them or serve some need of theirs or some power structure that they want to advance. So um, false messiahs, they, they're, they're real, you know? So just to be safe, how do you know if a very charismatic personality, a passionate leader is the messiah or not? How do you know? Well, I'm gonna, we're going to peek ahead. If you look down at verse 27, it says, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, even, even getting a crown on your head in the Senate building is not that clear. So I grew up where there was a lot of lightning in the Midwest, and when it flashes from the east to the west, everybody knows. <laughs> you can't miss it, right? And Jesus is saying that's what the coming, his second coming will be. Everybody's going to get it. You, you, nobody can say, I think this guy's the Messiah. It's not like that. It's not going to be like that. Nothing like that. If everyone doesn't get it, It hasn't happened yet. So Christ's return will be recognizable to all. So you don't have to move to Jonestown, Guyana to find the Messiah. It's not him. If you go to a conference, it's not the Messiah. If you have to read a book, it's not the Messiah. Or hear a speech, that's not the Messiah. It's not him. Verse 23 says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. I just saved you all from getting involved in a horrible cult. So he says, many will come, but but don't be fooled, don't be misled. And don't be misled by world troubles, wars, and disasters. Look at verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. Now, war is frightening. But in terms of end of the age frightened, don't be frightened. For those things must take place, and yet that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, there's never been warfare or global conflict as large as the 20th century saw. So there was a lot of prophetic speculation then. Mussolini is the Antichrist. Hitler is the Antichrist. Two world wars uh, in one century, even atomic weapons used on major cities. I mean, that's pretty apocalyptic stuff, really. Ooh, I'm falling apart. It's because I've got hearing aids in. There, there I go. That's not the end, that's not the end. He says it's the beginning of birth pangs. 
Those wars killed, well, World War II alone killed 60 million people. I mean, that was like 3% of the population of the world. That's a lot of people. And, and that kind of is interesting, prophetically speaking, because that war gave birth to the nation of Israel. So that was significant. That is significant, biblically speaking. And that may very well be the beginning of birth pangs that Jesus is talking about here, but it's not the end. So you can't conclude that a catastrophic period is necessarily the end of the world because things have been really bad before. I mean, the Black Death, you know, in the Middle Ages or uh, all kinds of famine and pestilence and wars have happened all over the world. The key words here, though, are in verse 6. See that you are not frightened. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. If you're a Christian, even if the world is truly falling apart, as it did in World War II for many countries, I mean, we, were, we lost a lot of people, but um, you know, we were spared the kind of destruction and uh, just total uh, people losing their homes, people living in refugee camps for years and years and all of that kind of stuff, running away and trying to find some safe place, and we were spared all of that, but many people were not spared all of that. So he says, don't be frightened because that's not the end of the world. See, you know, people say, that's the end of the world. No, it's, that's just the beginning of birth pangs, he says. In other words, we can have a confidence, even if we're in the midst of that kind of disaster, catastrophic human-caused disaster or, or natural disasters, that God is at work. He's, it's all under his control. We don't have to live in terror about all that. Even if you lose your life in that, it's not that that's just going to heaven for us. So don't totally go out of your head. One has the incredible sense reading all of this that God is in control of everything. And there's a settled sort of peace regarding that, that he's in control of everything. Even your little mini disasters, he's in control of all of that. So his providence rules over all. And verse seven and eight really indicate um, that the disasters that Jesus mentions will be present at the beginning of the end, and one gets the impression of increased frequency from that as well. This whole nation will rise against nation. But he says that's just the beginning of birth pangs. I love that metaphor, birth pangs. I mean, where else do you see such um, convulsions and pain leading to such a joyful end, you know, from the, the woman writhing in agony to the joyous birth of a child when all that pain goes away? And... Um, you're, you're happy all of a sudden. So it's going to be like that. They, the whole world's going to be convulsing with birth pangs, and then this happy thing is just going to be there, you know, this amazingly wonderful thing. So beginning at verse 9, then, Jesus moves to this subject of what his followers can expect near the end. So he says, then they will deliver you to tribulation. So it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. He says, don't fear, they're going to deliver you to tribulation. <laughs> and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name and at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another so now he's moving into this latter period of the end of the age things leading up to the end and he's now if you lived in China today you might believe the end was upon you because that's what's happening there in fact they just started basically getting school children to turn their Christian parents in it's like a thing to do now do your parents worship Jesus? Do they have a Bible in your home? Um, tell us about it, you know, getting kids to turn in their folks. So that has happened, that does happen, that is happening in certain places. But just because you're in China doesn't mean you, the, the end is near. 
It's happening to you. It's happened to Christians in different countries for 2,000 years. It happened during the Roman Empire. So you can't conclude that. It, it's kind of important where he says, hated by all nations. You know, you will be hated by all nations in verse 9. At the end, or as you're approaching the end, it's going to be global. Global. Why hated? He says, on account of my name. It's specifically to attack Jesus Christ through his people. Christians have endured persecution in many lands at various times, but never by all peoples, ever. That's never happened. And never associated with such a vast apostasy, says many are going to fall away. So many people that claim to be Christian or are church people are going to fall away from him. That's happening. Hatred between people, hatred for God's people, people turning over members of their own families. Luke actually records more detail here in his gospel. He says, uh, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Same, same idea there, but more detail there. So evil is going to look like it's winning. And people think it's bad now, and in some places it is bad now. I mean, this self-centered living and irreconcilable hatred amongst our people in our, well, in families and in our culture, uh, a growing lack of kindness and fairness and respect in the world. We're all kind of already down that path, but we really haven't seen anything yet. I mean, it's just getting started, right? Look, look at verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. When nations become lawless, and there are a number of nations like that right now, it, the lawlessness that b- builds into a culture tends to rob people of natural affection. But at the end, it's going to be much worse than that. It's going to be, uh, people are going to get cold. And we see the seeds of that, that now. The idea of giving up your short life for other people is in, in modern culture, even our culture, is becoming a sign of weakness. To actually give up your freedom to bring a child to birth is, is considered a, 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 a terrible thing. Why would you do that? Why would you give up your college degree to take care of a child that you conceived or all these other forms of that that we're seeing. Don't give up your, your happy, personal happiness to keep a marriage together. Don't give up your uh, personal freedom in order to give your life to serve other people. Don't, don't do those kinds of things. You don't need to do that. It's a me-first culture that we live in now. So self-fulfillment is the first priority. If you get self-fulfillment out of serving other people, do that. But don't give up your self-fulfillment to do good for other people. The words of Jesus are just so terrible here. Most people's love will grow cold. People have always been selfish, but it's not usually considered a virtue. But now it kind of is in a lot of ways. Of course, they don't use that word. Please be selfish. They just tell you you deserve whatever. That's the way they say it can see it all around us. And it will increasingly be difficult and costly to stand up for God. And Christians are going to have to choose. You're going to lose something in this life for Jesus' sake, or you're going to give up Jesus. That's, those are the choices. You're going to have to keep your mouth shut. 
Verse 13, the one who, en- <laughs> amen, sister, brother, who was that? Who was that? The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you've got to persevere through those things. Being genuine is a matter of endurance. Perseverance has always been the mark of genuine faith, and Jesus is telling us how it's going to be. You can't chafe at it. You're just going to have to be willing to lose in the world. Yeah, well, I wanted a good life with uh, plenty of money and my health and a good job, and doing what's right makes me a loser, and I'm not doing that anymore. That's a person that is not genuine, is not a Christian, doesn't know Jesus. They may have been a church person and said they did, but that person doesn't, that person doesn't follow God for God. That person follows God for what they can get out of him. And when, you, when the whole culture is against you, there's no advantage to following God. So you'll give him up. Does doing right make us a loser? Does it make you a loser? Well, the world would say, yeah, you're a loser because you're going to lose prominence and jobs maybe, position, respect, loss of professional status, being well thought of. So the world says, loser. In fact, they say, hater. But what if God thinks you're a winner if you endure all of that, see? Which one lasts forever and which one is only temporary? See, the world is passing away, John says in his little letter, and also its lusts. But those who do the will of God abide forever. So isn't, what, isn't God declaring you a winner what really matters? Peter, Peter was one of the four men that asked Jesus this question and heard this talk, this Olivet Discourse. And many years later, he wrote in his little letter, 1 Peter, um, to believers who were suffering real loss for following Jesus, people that were the enemies of their culture. And he says there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So you see, the sufferer becomes the winner because God blesses him. This world is temporary and the wicked will pass into darkness forever and will never be heard from again. The righteous will Shine like the sun, Daniel says. We are promised that. And Peter, just a few more verses down from there, in verse 19 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So we entrust our souls to him because he always does what is right, and he is faithful in the promises he's made to us. If we do that, we persevere. So, birth pangs, that means things will get worse and that will lead to great joy. And we are to live today understanding all of that, ready for a civilization to fall around us, 
for evil to triumph, for disaster, both man-made disaster, cultural disaster, um, and God-inflicted disasters on this world. And again, tragically, the most tragic thing is that most people's love will grow cold, but our love doesn't have to grow cold from that. It can be a fire in us to love sacrificially and uniquely in the midst of all of that. We're going to be wounded by this, this lack of love, this loss of love. Knowing it doesn't make it less painful, but we know God is going to make all things right. And these are only birth pangs. And our king is coming. And he's with us now, but he's coming in power. That's our perspective on this life. So remember, life is all about what he's doing. It's not about us. And so often we think it is about us, don't we? I mean, we just can't help going there. I do that too. But God does love us and he does care about us. But we exist for him, not the other way around. He doesn't exist for us. And we live to serve his great redemptive work. So we see that finally. Let me just close with verse 14 here. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So that's the answer to the question. History and the end of one age transitioning into the next age is really about the gospel going throughout the whole world. And all nations. Because God has a heart for all peoples. And the gospel has to go out, and, and it is. And there are signs that we are approaching the end. The return of Israel as a nation is certainly a key thing that's happened. This incredible advancing technology is a major thing that's happening. The gospel taking hold deeply in Asia and South America and Africa. Even though it's declining in the Western countries, that's significant. God is on the move, and for us that might mean sorrow and loss or joy, or both. But Jesus says, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. The birth pangs are necessary. Evil has to run its course, show its stuff, reveal its true nature. That's why God let it goes on, lets it go on. But remember, all the ills coming upon this world are only hastening the day that Jesus is coming when all things will be put to right. So starting at verse 15, he gives some very practical advice to those who are among his people, who will see that day of evil um, coming, both in the short-term Jerusalem prophecy and, and what's going to happen at the end of Jerusalem. But that's for our next gathering. Not our next gathering next week, but in two weeks. Because next week, we're having a very special speaker here. And you should come for that. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we're so thankful for the perspective Jesus gives us on this world and all of your goodness. You have ordained that good will triumph, that righteousness will reign through your son, the Messiah, the promised one. Promised to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And you will see it done. As Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So let us live for you in the in-between time, between the first and the second coming to represent you to a lost world. Help us not to be frightened, but to see opportunities. In Jesus' name we pray.